0: Africa has grown economically in recent years in such a way that many of its populations now enjoy both the benefits and the drawbacks of a middle-class Western lifestyle. Yet it is also growing rapidly in demographic terms due to the combination of high fertility and lower mortality raising questions about employment and development generally. What does the future of the continent look like? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy. I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Ebenezer Obadare, who is Douglas Dillon's Senior Fellow in Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Before coming to the Council on Foreign Relations, he was Professor of Sociology at the University of Kansas. He's a specialist on religion in Africa and author of a number of books, including most recently, Pastoral Power, Clerical State, Pentecostalism, Gender, and Sexuality in Nigeria. Thanks so much for being with us today, Ebenezer Obadare. Thank you for having me. Maybe let's first just uh, check in on sort of Africa as the COVID experience, at least for us, is sort of winding down. We think, you know, that's not necessarily Africa's story. And so I wonder how, we, how you would characterize Africa's uh, experience with COVID. I mean, it was thought uh, that the continent might be relatively unscathed due to the relatively young age structure of the population, and that surely may have helped. But how did the public health infrastructure hold up?
1: Thank you, John. So there, there, there are two, two, two dimensions to that. But before answering your question, you know, let, I, let me try and broadly characterize, you know, what seems to be the African experience with, with COVID. It, this is one of those classic situations where you don't know what you don't know. Um, bef- um at the, at the outset of, of the epidemic, uh, the expectation that Africa was going to take a big hit and, you know, the, the 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 anxiety that Africa was going to be, you know, more adversely affected than, you know, other continents, or other, other parts of the world, it's quite legitimate, you know, based on the understanding that, you know, the infrastructure, especially medical infrastructure, you know, is very weak. And the fact that many people expected on account of that, that African countries were going to struggle. So if you look at some of the earlier modeling on, you know, fatalities hospitalizations and all of that uh they looked really grim you know on paper but that has not that appears not to have been been the case and i say appear again because we don't really know what the actual numbers many of the, the countries have struggled to you know to document, you know, infection, hospitalization, fatalities. But part of the problem is that before COVID, the, the infrastructure, you know, for gathering data, you know, for keeping data and um, for exchanging data, that infrastructure, you know, was was uh, was not up to par. And that has affected, you know, um, what we know or what we think we know about COVID. So the way I think about it is this. It's probably the case that more people than we think we know died on account of COVID, that hospitalization was greater than we think it is or it's been. At the same time, and this appears to be a contradiction, at the same time, it will seem as if fewer people on the whole have died on account of COVID. So in between those two extreme poles lies some truth that I would will, I will imagine that, over you know the next five ten years, we'll have a better better understanding of. Having said that, most people you know seem to have moved on because the, the impression has gathered and formed that Africa has been spared the worst, and that seems you know on 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 the face of things uh, to to be the case. The other thing, the other part of your question that I think we should talk about is. The quality of medical infrastructure, which itself is part of the the, the, the bigger, you know, um, problem of of public infrastructure. I think that's something that still needs, you know, to be improved on. You know, health delivery, you know, continues to be a challenge. Um, allocation of resources, you know, while you know sometimes formidable on paper does not necessarily translate into in, into reality. Most people, I mean, don't have access, you know, to, um, to, to, to hospitals, you know, to doctors. So that still seems to be the case, you know, ac- ac- across the continent. And in anticipation of the, of the next pandemic, or even in terms of thinking about people's everyday health, these are things that, you know, in terms of policy that, you know, um, we, we need to we, to think about.
0: Right. So one of the, you uh you know, the issues that we're concerned about from the perspective of the global well-being in regard to COVID is, you know, getting the rest of the world vaccinated. And uh, so I wonder if you could bring us up to date on, you know, the progress of vaccination in Africa. I mean, I know we're basically talking about Sub-Saharan Africa, but whatever you want to comment on.
1: So again, that seems to, to be, you know, partly related to my answer to your first question, which is that it's not just that people think you know, or are behaving as if the pandemic is over. One of the concrete actions that they are taking in respect to that is that people are not being vaccinated. If you don't think COVID is still a problem, then, you know, you don't think that you should get vaccinated. I think the last numbers I was looking at, I think less than 1% of the African population has been vaccinated. Um, I read more, interestingly enough, I read more about COVID in Africa in western newspapers than in African newspapers which in itself is a commentary on how people people's perception of 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 the pandemic and um, for good or for ill and again m- maybe in the course of time you know looking back we'll be able to determine you know what went right what went wrong you know they the, and w- one other thing is why covid appears not to have done you know the kind of damage you know we we expected that you know it it might. People have talk, spoken about the relatively the fact that you know Africa is the is the youngest continent. Um, people have spoken about the weather. I mean, there are all, all these you know theories and hypotheses. And again, you know, I'm I'm on the side of we don't know because we don't know what we don't know. But time is going to tell us a lot you know a lot of things. Right. So you know, what's the
0: economic impact been? And I mean, it sounds like in certain respects people haven't you know, been terribly affected, in effect, uh, by COVID. It's not the scourge, perhaps, in um, Africa that it was for us. Uh, and so maybe the economic impact has been limited. But uh, what would you say
1: about that? Um, so it's interesting that you're asking, we're having this conversation in May 2022. So any answer to the question has to roll in, has to factor in the fact that something happened you know, earlier this year, that has also complicated the economic climate, the economic situation in Africa, and I think we should roll that into this question, which is the Ukraine conflict. So, the economic situation in in most of Africa now. You know, it's very grim. Inflation is as its highest in, you know, in decades. I was looking at the numbers for, for Nigeria, you know, yesterday. I think 16.4% or something, you know, in that neighborhood, you know, uh, over the last three or four months. So average life, average everyday life has become very extremely difficult for most people. Um, industries are experiencing, you know, gas, you know, uh, uh, short, uh, shortages. Um the the fact that, you know, countries can no longer import grains from, from Ukraine, something we didn't know was actually the case, you know, you're talking about Egypt, you're talking about, you know, Nigeria, Senegal, so all those things, you know, are, are happening at the same time. The the, the the long and short is that economically speaking, there's a lot of distress which countries are scrambling to manage but it's not just due to covid is my point you know so long before covid economic uh, the, the the economic prospects you know of african countries you know were were very gloomy and we can go into the you know into the into the reasons for that covid complicated an already dire situation the ukraine conflict has hardly helped matter. So you have to think along, you know, those three lines in thinking about, you know, the current economic predicament of many African countries. Sure. Yeah, I definitely wanted to get into the question of the effects of the Ukraine war or
0: the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, on Africa. Uh, we had an interview uh, I don't know, a month or so ago with a former director of the UN World Food Program who like basically everybody else is predicting pretty dire uh, consequences of the war because of the enormous amount of global wheat and other grains and things that Ukraine and Russia uh, have you know long contributed I mean something like half of Egypt's grain or wheat anyway comes apparently from Ukraine so that's going to be a big problem for the people who live in uh, you know, particularly the poorer people who live in, in Egypt and and I guess you're saying of course uh, throughout Africa uh, but one issue that arises in regard to the uh, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been that African countries have been, in many cases, reticent about taking sides against Russia. And I wonder how you would explain, you know, what's going on there. I mean, uh, there's been, of course, a great deal of talk about the way in which Vladimir Putin, you know, may unexpectedly, unintentionally, unpredictably uh, have, you know, brought the West back together, but that's not necessarily what's going on in a lot of the global South.
1: So that that's a very interesting question. Um, there's a lot to dive into there, and I, I'll try to be you know as brief as possible. But I, I guess the, the, my the, the first observation I would like to make is that anybody who has been paying close attention to African com- uh, politics would not in the least have been surprised at the way things have, have turned out. The fact that you know some African countries you know decided to bat for for Russia or or at least decided that we're just going to to stay on defense. It shouldn't come as a surprise if you know just you know the ABC of African politics. And what do I mean? Couple of things. One, that historically the Soviet Union, now Russia, if you will, has been, you know, very influential in in, in African countries, giving support to um, nationalist groups, groups fighting, you know, um, self determination, you know, groups fighting against, you know, I mean, apartheid in, in in I mean, South Africa is, you know, the classic example. So there is a there is a lot of political and ideological sympathy that has been, you know, for for the Soviet Union and and and, and for Russia. So the other thing is that when we think about you know external influence in africa you know we think about the west we think about over the last 20 years we've paid a lot of attention to china we've paid less attention to russia russia has been flying under the radar but it's been quietly effective all of which is to say that when you now think about the way african countries have responded to this conflict that shouldn't you know be a surprise at all so that let's all that you know that so that's one point the other point is to think about the substantive questions that African countries are using these opportunities to raise. So I can talk about maybe, you know, three or four of them. One is the the perception generally um, that Western rhetoric and Western action haven't always converged, that the West tends to say one thing, but tends to behave, you know, in, in in another way. That that has come true in many of the things that we've seen over the last, you know, the, the grievances of African countries over the last three or four months. The second one is the 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 perception that African countries are not are inferiorized or, or juvenilized, that they're treated not as fully developed moral agents in the international system, but as um as less developed agents. Who should be spoken to but who should not be heard from. Um, African countries, just a third point, like they, they have a list of, the rap sheet is very long, the list of grievance. Like, oh, think about what Western countries you know did in South Africa. Think about what you did in Libya. You know, so they have all these examples. And then um, finally, um th- there's the, the the complaint that Africa cont- continues to be treated as a as a no man's land, you know, where when western countries need to take something they just come they get it and they, they they go away so and then all those things have come together all those grievances coupled with the um russian influence that i spoke about earlier all those things have converged at this very moment to produce um what many have termed the reticence of, of 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 many african countries um and i think that's that's where that's why we are where we are right now
0: i i'm sure that's right i've heard that kind of uh, answer to this kind of question in the past yes. uh, but but that notwithstanding or or notwithstanding your uh emphasis on the importance of the relationship with russia i do want to ask you about china okay. which is also a, place, a country that has uh Come and taken a lot of resources, uh, because it needs them in order to run its economy. Um, and unlike Russia, as far as I'm aware, uh, it's left a, something of a footprint. I mean, it's it, it doesn't seem to be, you know, settler colonialism. But there are, you know, in various contexts, a lot of Chinese who will be, you know, sent down to work on this project or that project. Uh, and there's a lot of talk of a kind of debt colonialism. I mean, creation of, you know, obligations on the part of countries, you know, not sufficiently well off to pay for the kinds of things that the Chinese are doing for them. And so that puts them in the Chinese debt and, you know, gives China leverage over them. I mean, how would you
1: characterize China's posture in the in the continent? So that's 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 a great question. I'm going to to give you two responses. Um, one is I'm going to respond to your question, and then you know on the on the back end maybe offer a little bit of criticism, not of you but of the African you know response, to sort of give you a more comprehensive picture of what I'm talking about. So China has been extremely you know effective at cultivating you know many African countries, um, but why it's been successful? I think is is the is the key point, which is that I think for many of these leaders, China offers a model of intervention, a model of relationship, and domestically in China, a model of governance that is in contradistinction with the model that the West represents. So here is a way to think about it. John says, you know, give me 50 bucks. I say, Oh, you can have 50 bucks. You can pay me back at this, you know, very interesting low rate, you know, over the next you know 20 years or so. That music to the ears of many African leaders um, who are not necessarily, and this is an important point that, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll still talk about this, who are not necessarily accountable to their own people. So if you're an African leader, you want um, a railway built from, you know, destination A to destination B, no questions are. China is where you want to go. And China is ready, it's willing. Oh, and it, it, it ponies up money. Not only that, it gives you human labor to do that. Right, like sort of like a turnkey project, as Americans call it. On the other hand, Western assistance is often bound up with some, you know, some things that are required of you. Oh, we need to think about your human rights record. Um, You need to do an environmental assessment, you know, before you build a rail. Um, We need to make sure that you're not using this military equipment that you're asking for. We need to make sure that you don't use it to pacify groups that you, you perceive, you know, to be opposition that is legitimate, but that you are characterizing, you know, as mischievous. The West tends to ask those questions. Now, it is true that it, those questions are often asked hypocritically. That's true. But at least those questions are often asked. And for me, that, that's a good thing. So we are then seeing at work two contrasting philosophies of governance, two contrasting philosophies of relationship. Intervention. On the one hand, there's China. I'm asking you no questions. You want a road? I'll build you a road. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And then you have the Western thing, which is, you know, perhaps more complex. And I think if there's anyone that is aware of this, it is China. China is basically aware that African countries have this history of grievance, you know, um, against the West. And it's been it's been exploiting that. So this is the, the, the back end of the thing that I said I was going to talk about. That it's important to when we think about Africa and China to make a separation between what African leaders are doing with China and what the people of Africa want from China. So you have two kinds of, there are two, two, two layers. On the one hand, African leaders who are not necessarily accountable to their people are getting all these you know, huge investments, um, for, you know, apparently, you know, for their people. At the same time, because China does not ask questions about, about social justice, you know, about human rights, um, about the rule of law, you know, about democracy, you know, in those countries, ordinary people then think that China, and I don't think they are necessarily wrong, that China is not interested in those things. They admire China for what it's been able to achieve, especially over the last 30 years. So if you look at patterns of emigration from Africa over the last two decades, it's interesting how, you know, increasingly more and more people you know i've i've gone to you know shanghai and you know and beijing and all you know major centers in china so that's a tribute to the fact that you know that people actually recognize that the chinese economic miracle is real but the political difficulties remain that most people don't see china as a model, you know, of, of, of political governance that they should emulate, and that when they think about Chinese leaders, they know that African politicians like Chinese leaders because they don't ask the same kind of difficult questions that Western leaders tend to ask. Fascinating. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I, I want to switch gears a little
0: bit uh, and ask about uh, demography. Um, You know, everybody, I think, not everybody, but many people are aware that Africa is growing uh, demographically rather dramatically. And this basically has, you know, good causes in certain ways, right? People are living longer and living healthier lives. But their, you know, fer- fertility is outstripping mortality, and that means population growth and pretty on a pretty dramatic scale. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see the demographic uh, you know, challenge developing uh, and can there be a kind of demographic dividend, so to speak, rather than this being simply a problem?
1: That, that's a great question, and for, for me the answer is actually very simple because it's this is it's a it's simple because I'll give you the same answer if you ask me about demographic boom in another regional or cultural context, which is it depends. What does it depend on? Depends on the quality of the population. Having a big population, you know, that, the kind we're talking about in Africa, can be a good thing because if you have you know good human capital, translates into, you know, everything positive, you know, for the country or, or, or for the region or for the continent. So it's always about the quality of the population. I think the problem with Africa is that for all kinds of, you know, because of all the problems, you know, that, that, that the continent or the region currently has, it's not been able to capitalize on this demographic boom. And, and what do I mean? If you, if you think about, you know, the continent that is hemorrhaging human capital the most. It's Africa, and I think followed you know, closely you know, by Latin America. What ties those two regions of the world together is poor governance. The fact that people, because of persistent you know, um, political abuse and repression, because rule of law is not secure, people do not necessarily see their future in those continents. So think about, you know, the lines, you know, of immigrants constantly flowing, you know, from Central and South America, you know, trying to cross the border into the United States. It's a very complicated process. And I don't think I'm trying to, you know, to simplify something that is extremely complicated. But one main reason that tends to get left, you know, out of this conversation, is that these are very poorly governed countries. And if there's anybody who realizes that, it's the very people who are the most vocal opponents of of those regimes and who bear the brunt of political maladministration in those countries. So let's come back to Africa. I was just reading the report about, I think, three days ago of a boat that capsized off the coast of Tunisia trying to make its way to, to the Mediterranean. Every year John hundreds if not thousands of people, young people, die trying to cross the sahara so that they can get to the Maghreb and then cross over you know to 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 um, to southern Europe or die trying to cross across uh, make it the journey across the Mediterranean. What that tells us is that young people the, the the very you know the, the core of that demographic boom you know that we're, we're we're discussing they don't necessarily feel that their futures lie in Africa and because of that they don't feel invested in those countries. So the long the, the short answer to your very interesting question is that human capital b- 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 population itself it's just the is the beginning of what should be a very interesting conversation about. Human capital and and how you invest in human capital. The the, the 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 sad truth, you know, the unfortunate truth right now is that Africa is unable to capitalize on this very expansive population because the conditions are not there for young people to actualize themselves. Um, the way to change things is to come back to the question I was raising earlier in the context in, in relation to China to make sure there's the rule of law is obeyed that the rights of you know individuals are respected that women are allowed you know to be entrepreneurs and not treated as second class citizens and that the dead weight of the state on you know everyday individuals that that dead weight is removed so that human enterprise in south africa in nigeria in mali in togo wherever can be liberated you can you this is it's a very complicated issue but that's the best way for africa to be able to make sure that what appears you know um that its demographic you know this demographic explosion is translated into an advantage for the region
0: Right. Indeed, uh, many people have uh, argued that one of the main problems in terms of military conflict has to do with youth bulges and precisely the kinds of problems that you're pointing to that, you know, there are not enough jobs, there are people who are educated, but no relevant jobs sort of for the kind of training they have. And that creates frustration. And, you you know, just as in the United States, I mean, violence is associated with youth, basically. a certain age bracket of the population. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the conflict situation on the continent. Um, I mean, Ethiopia is going through a pretty bad time right now. Congo still simmers. Uh, Sudan is, uh, you know, having unfortunate problems. Somalia is back in the news for bad reasons. Nigeria, Nigeria, of course. So maybe you could talk about, you know, how you see this. I mean, I know, again, it's a big continent and uh it's a complicated place but, so i don't want to assume that africa's one thing but maybe you could talk a little bit about the areas you think are most uh, concerning
1: i mean this how you know conflicts taking place, you know, in different states, widely dispersed regions, you know, of the continent. So they don't necessarily have the same reasons. They don't necessarily originate from the same, you know, set of reasons. So, and I think it's important to, you know, to start with that, that they are very, very local and very specific genealogies. Some of them have been going on, you know, for a long time. Some have only, you know, Occurred, you know, very recently, and it's, we should be very careful not to put all those conflicts, you know, in the same box. The, the, the only common factor, you know, that I think I see in all of them, and I, I'm I'm saying this very carefully, is what you might call the, the crisis of the state, right? And what what do I mean by the crisis of the state? What I mean is, what is it that the state is supposed to do? What kind of relationship should the state have? you know, with, with society, you know, with everyday people. What you have in most African countries, again, going back to the crisis of the rule of, of law that I said earlier, is political centralization. Political centralization means that power is deeply concentrated in center. It's not redistributed. And because of that, a lot of tension and antipathies is built into the system. And the one way to think structurally about some of these conflicts is that the explosion of of some of those tensions is bringing out all kinds of forces that are hostile to the state and are therefore either seeking to restructure the state or totally disestablish the state. Um, So think about Northern Nigeria, for instance. Um, Boko Haram is now... It's been going strong for almost two decades now. When it started, everybody thought this was something that the state was going to be able to to deal with over, you know, very quickly, over a very short period. But we'll find that, what we'll find is that because of the crisis of the state itself, because the state itself has lost considerable capacity, you know, know, uh, because, you know, the, the armed forces, you know, the military that used to be in power, on account of being in power... Is now a shadow of what it used to be as, as 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 an institution, as a corporate body. That that institution is no longer the same. The chickens are coming home to roost. So many of these, you know, states are considerably very they're very weak. Um, even though the the state, in theory, the ability for for many of these states to project power, you know, over their you know physical territories is extremely limited. Which explains why some of them have been using mercenaries. Which explains why some of them are drawn to. China because they can get you know military equipment so it's it's a very interesting it's a very complicated process but at the center of all of this I'm postulating is the crisis of the state and the, the, the one way to think about the way to 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 solve that militarily in the short term you have to engage you know and 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 neutralize you know, the, the the forces, you know, that are arranged against the state. But there's no long-term solution that does not include, you know, having the rule of law, making sure that citizens have a buy-in, making sure that you build infrastructure that people, you know, will give people, you know, a sense of security and stopping them from wanting to leave the continent because they don't see their futures in those places. Very interesting. And of
0: course, this, uh draws us in the direction of your own specialty, which I, which I do want to ask you about. And of course, that's religion, yes. and especially in, in Nigeria. But I'm going to ask you you know, to talk about this a bit more broadly. I mean, uh, Christianity has been sort of flourishing in Africa. It's really, many people would say, it's kind of the future of Christianity as compared to what's going on in places like Europe and even the relatively religious United States. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it has it has a competitor on, on the African continent, which is, of course, Islam. And uh, so I wonder if you could talk about, um, you know, how the two religions are doing, so to speak, and how are they getting along, shall we say, uh, and to what extent, uh, you know, is the... The encounter between these two faiths, you know, a, a, a source of conflict, which of course it is in Nigeria and elsewhere. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I guess one could start with so, speaking in a primarily Nigerian context, but something that may as well apply to, you know, other African countries, that there's a backdrop of, you know, mutual competition for resources, for recruitment of members in a very lively religious marketplace between Christians and Muslims. In different parts of you know in Nigeria in different parts of Africa. So that backdrop, you know, I think is very interesting. So that it's 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 important to establish so as to make sense of whatever we say about um interreligious rivalry, you know, um, competition for power in different parts of the continent. But in in, in the specific case of Africa of, of Nigeria, which is one of the, you know, epicenters of the most re- recent religious effervescence in, in, in the continent. The other places will be like Ghana, you know, Zimbabwe, South Africa, you know, Namibia, um, Zambia. Uh, these are places, these are countries where, you know, the Pentecostal denomination um, has been, you know, extremely lively. Has been buoyant and has dominated, has basically cornered, you know, the religious religious marketplace over the last, you know, twenty, you know, twenty five years. The question is, why? There's so many reasons. You know, the, the central one again. I'm coming back to the point I raised about the crisis of the state. This is just basic sociology, which is that once the state is unable to discharge, you know, what it's supposed to do in terms of, you know, basic welfare, provision of, you know, security, that People then look elsewhere to have those needs met. And the the most important institution, the most important non-state institution doing that in Nigeria and many African countries are religious institutions, whether Islamic institutions or Christian institutions. Um, In Nigeria... Pentecostalism. So Pentecostals are the, the the most performative, the most ebullient, you know, spirit emphasizing, you know, dem, you know denomination of Christianity in, in 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 Africa and most part of you know the the global South today. It's been all the rage in in Nigeria and has been the most the most buoyant expression of Christianity over the course of the Nigerian Fourth Republic. So the, the title of my last book is Pentecostal Republic. And basically, it's to basically it's to make the point that the Nigerian Fourth Republic itself cannot be understood without paying attention to the ascendance, power, and the cultural might of of Pentecostalism. So I talk in the book about what I call the Pentecostalization of, of of everyday life. So we're now in this situation where, because the state has become you know redundant in the lives of everyday citizens, people turn to these religious institutions. But since there is no vacuum in life, you know something also happens in these spaces that people have turned to. You meet powerful religious agents who also use the, the, the leverage that they have over the congregations in many of these, you know, you know very large churches to also leverage and accumulate considerable economic, cultural and political capital. Which is why if you look at Nigeria over the last 20 years, so the first pr- president in 1999 in the in the newborn Fourth Republic was President Obasanjo, It was a Pentecostal. He was succeeded, you know, briefly by you know a Muslim who died, you know, within three years. But then the man who succeeded him, good luck Jonathan, was also another Pentecostal. Um, the current president is a Muslim, but the vice president is a Pentecostal. So you have a situation where you can't understand what's going on. And one of the leading candidates for the presidency that the election taking place next year, Pastor Tunde Bakari, again is a Pentecostal. So you have, and this is the Nigerian example that is repeated in different degrees, you know, in, in other African countries. The way I like to think about this then is to focus on what this means for the way we think about the state, you know, the capacity of the state. Is the state boosted or is it degraded if power, not just political power, but spiritual power in this context, migrates to these other institutions? and these other agents and other entities. So, we are at this very interesting crossroads in African politics where in order to understand what happens within the confines of the state, you have to understand what happens within the confines of people's, you know, spiritual, you know, uh, spiritual politics. It's fascinating. I mean, as I told you, when we met in
0: person a month or so ago, uh, you know, I had at one time been reading a lot about Pentecostalism, probably mainly the work of David Martin, whose work is surely familiar to you. Yes. Uh, and I guess I stopped reading about it when, you know, he had finished talking about uh Basically, Latin America and certain uh, certain parts of Europe. Uh, So it's interesting to hear that the story really, you know, continues or or has its own parallel in in Africa and uh, what a massive impact it seems to be having on culture, politics, et cetera. Because as you say, it's not you know this is not uh, old line uh, Protestantism or or Roman Catholicism. It's a very sort of particular brand of of Protestantism. So uh, with apparently you know huge impacts on the way people behave even think about the world and orient themselves to their possibilities. So in any case, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to thank Ebenezer Obadare for sharing his insights about Africa and its future. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizon.